0: And welcome to Tones and Drones, an ambient music podcast. I'm Jason Miller, and Tones and Drones is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVOU. The music you're listening to now is from the band Interpol, from their 2002 album, Turn On The Bright Lights, a song called The New. The intro of the song features bassist Carlos Dingler, who was with the band until 2010 and left to pursue other interests, and one of those interests since then has been electronic music, ambient music, and he's going to be on the program today to talk about not just that transition from the world of rock music into electronic music and his passion for that music for for many years, but also about the album Aqueduct. It's an amazing collection of uh, well-composed songs, and as always, during the conversation, playing some excerpts from the album, you can find his music at his website, carlosdingler.com. It was really uh, great talking to him and having him on the program, and uh, I hope that uh, you enjoy our conversation as well. So up next, my conversation with Carlos Dingler, here on Tones and Drones.
1: Carlos, thanks for being on the program. This is really cool. My pleasure. To have you on the show. So um, when I received the album, uh, I was sent the album a while back and I started listening right, right away to Aqueduct. And, and, and I really, I really liked the album. It I was listening when I first was listening to it. Um, I was listening to it in, in these Sony headphones. Um, And I was, I was working and the mood was a really good mood for what I was doing. I was, it was a lot of like noodly stuff. And it was, it was, it, there was the, there was a calmness to it that that really just settled right there. Mm. And, and then I'll kind of go back to the record and I'll listen to it again later. And I'll just try to experience it in different ways. And uh, I really enjoyed it very much. And uh, I was looking at like kind of where to start on it and, and, and where do, where do we go? And I, I, you know, um, I I want to just kind of ask you, how did you, um, how did you kind of find this music that we call, ambient. And now I know it's a big galaxy now. It's like the Andromeda galaxy of what an ambient album is. But how did you land how did you land in in that galaxy?
2: Yeah, um so my journey with this music is actually quite old. I've been listening to the artists that influenced me um for quite some time. Um it was really special for me to 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 have Aqueduct played on the Stars End program for example because nice. that that program was pretty much what was responsible for me getting into ambient and new age in, um, in the late nineties, I used to just lay back in my bedroom and just bliss out for hours. I had never heard this kind of music before. So it was kind of like this gift that was just coming my way every Saturday night. It was such a, such a, just a beautiful, powerful experience. Then I went to college in New York and I kind of brought that, energy with me, uh, started a college ra- uh, radio show at NYU. Um, it was called, and then I got really into goth music. And okay. It just, okay, cool. So, so it really took like this dark ambient, <laughs> like ethereal goth, um, sort of turn, um, because I was in New York city and the club scene was really vibrant back then. So I just was clubbing a lot, but still wanting to kind of engage with this energy field, like the, the much more meditative aspect of it, just with a really dark edge. But I, I took the stars end energy with me. I met Sam during that time. I actually had him on my show Oh, uh, cool! Way, way back when. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and then it's just really weird because I really just kind of pocketed the, the, the music for a very long time, because then I got more and more involved in the New York club scene specifically the rock scene. And then I helped form Interpol and then Interpol took off, you know? And so a lot of, and and I kept DJing, but now it was much more like dance music really, and sort of electro and post-punk oriented uh, dance floor music, plus also playing in this uh, very large band. Um, And it was just such an exciting time. There was really no time for me to pursue this, Music, mm-hmm. but it was still there. I would put it on at the end of the night. I would put it on uh, in the van. I would put it on in the bus to just kind of like power down. And that's when I really discovered that this music really it offers like a it offers a different way to engage with music than than what we um, are accustomed to normally in the pop world. Okay. I always felt that whenever yeah. I put on, let's say, Steve Roach on my headphones, it was such a departure from just, it was like I was entering another universe
3: yeah.
2: because even the preconditions for, for listening to this music were absolutely different, you know, and not even just the length of the tracks, but just, just the whole way that you bring yourself to it is on a completely different frame of mind. And that was something that really stuck with me throughout those years. It was something that I didn't want to forget about. And so I left the music industry and pursued um, the other passions that I have, like acting and writing. And for the longest time, I I really was conscious of the fact that I wasn't doing any music anymore, but I really needed that sort of decade to just not do music because the life that I led as, you know, for lack of a better term, a rock star was so intense that I feel like I needed some kind of um, like an elixir, if you will, to just get my, it was like my, I needed methadone to kind of get (laughs) off the heroin. And my methadone was going to getting my MFA in acting and pursuing my writing ambitions and so forth. And I just really put music in general on the back burner, but I always knew that something, you know, that i would need to you know i'm a musician i'm a composer by heart that is just part of my dna i knew that i could only ignore it for so long and like with many um many musicians the pandemic really just accelerated what would have been happening anyway
3: okay. got all
2: my my old gear dusted off my old gear got it out of storage updated my programs updated my computer so on and so forth and then it just it just felt like a natural calling for me to return to this music that had been with me this whole time, and because I, you know, there was a time when I was, you could say that I had an ambition to be a film score composer.
0: Okay, sure.
2: And because I also sure. listened to a lot of classical music, that 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 very much informed um, any kind of non-rock pursuits in music right which classical yeah which classical
1: yeah. ambient? if if somebody had to just throw out a genre that ambient probably comes from is probably classical and then the synthesizers came out you know i always feel that yeah some of that music is very ambient you know
2: oh certainly Spacious. i mean a lot of Debussy is is very ambient a lot of yeah. uh, messian is ambient um, yeah. minimalism itself is you could make a case that- yeah as a type of ambient music sure um a lot of the experimentation that people like uh, lamont young for example were doing with like their 12 hour long music sets you know their happenings in the in the countercultural revolution in new york city that that similarly offered this different way to engage with music that i'm that i that attracted me so much to it um and with the classical i just because i was so involved in like you know the you know a somewhat for lack of a better term la oriented kind of industry which yeah. rock rock and pop music is it came, It became kind of natural for me to want to be a film score composer it was like a natural way for me to just sort of try to graduate to another level because i did i wasn't very comfortable as a rock person i it, it there was there were some real severe limits there for me in terms of longevity and and just my willingness to to participate in what you know, needed to be participated in Mm -hmm. to uh, make that a viable life. So I was looking for other ways to express myself musically. Film scoring became one of those. But um, I think now I just realized that, uh, especially film scoring itself is such a capitalist venture as well, Mm -hmm. that I just sort of soured on it, for lack of a better term. And now with the pandemic coming up, and sort of asking myself this question, well, what am I going to do right now? What is the music that m- is most important to me? What, what do I feel called upon to contribute to this genre? Um, and it wasn't film scoring. It certainly wasn't rock. It, it was this. It was, there was something unsaid within me from all of these years of being exposed to this just absolutely wonderful transcendental sound. That I feel felt compelled to uh, contribute to that, and that brought me to Aqueduct that brought me to this album that brought me to um, spend you know, hours upon hours throughout the pandemic, uh, you know, reengaging with this passion of mine.
1: Well, it's. Uh, I, well, I hear a lot of strings string influence in the album and so I was you know when you I said love that, my strings I, I was going to ask you if you had aspirations interest and in, in the world of film music which Which if somebody doesn't listen to a lot of the ambient music, they might just like classical music. They may go, that's movie music, you know, it's like, but, but I heard a lot of the strings and I I wanted to ask that. So you answered that question. I was like, okay, so you, you, you appreciate a good string arrangement. Oh my God. Yes. A good orchestral set. I mean, look (laughs) at
2: if you break down any Arvo Parrot piece or even just to kind of maybe offer something that's a little, perhaps better known um, is Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings Mm -hmm. is a classic example of how, when you orchestrate Mm -hmm. a string section, just the, the heights that it can actually take you to.
1: Yeah. I mean, that piece is Mm. the, the, the Adagio for strings has been, I mean, it's a, it's a proto ambient piece. My gosh. I mean, I I definitely, you know, William Orbit, like, Mess with that piece years ago and his piece. Oh, yeah? the modern I haven't style. Seen it's an album by William Orbit called Pieces in the Modern Style, in which he applies some ambient natures to classical music. It's really cool, like a two mm. album, double album. Oh, wow! And How like to check that out, but you mentioned Ervo Part, which I, 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 I love his music so much. And I like when and I, he he's on Hearts of Space, you know. No. I mean, my really? gosh, yeah, they use him when they do. Oh, sure, yeah, work. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And yeah, Stephen yeah. Hill always gets to go i had to interview Stephen hill so if he i don't know if he listens by but always like he's like
0: estonian composer
1: Ervopard. i just like the way he says the contemplative music of estonian composer and then you know and, 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 and where's estonia you know and you look at estonia and you go that's exactly where ervo Pard is from um <laughs> that is what he looks at when he makes this music um the, <laughs> When you add uh, in a bunch so, of fjords and in a, in a bunch of fjords, exactly. It seems like Scandinavia also in, in Eastern Europe has a, a vibe to oh, create, yeah. to create this music. A lot of oh, it comes absolutely. out of there. And uh, whenever, um, do like, um, whenever you are pursuing, whenever you are pursuing and and I imagine are still in, in a way pursuing acting, um, how, what were the film scores that were around you? What was the movie music that was around you? Cause you're in it in a different way, having an aspiration to, well, it'd be great to be able to score a film or score a documentary or something. What did that intersect a little bit while you were, were working as an actor, but within, within film.
2: Um, well, Hearing well, uh, the
1: music later on. Right.
2: So for me, the journey was more that I, I discovered acting or I discovered my desire for acting somewhat concomitantly with my desire to, 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 to score for film. Okay, cool. And there's always been this kind of uh, schizophrenia with me with regard to that, because it's very, it's not very common at all for someone. I think I, it involves two very different workflows to be a film score composer and to be an actor. It's not very often that you can put those two, two, th- those two things together And they're also very, very demanding uh, enterprises. So if you dedicate yourself to one, chances are you're not going to really have much time to dedicate yourself uh, to the other. So what I would do is I'd go through phases. And so when there wasn't any acting work, I was kind of just investigating film scores. And when um, it felt like, oh, there was some momentum with acting, I would just leave that all behind and then just sort of focus on on my body. Because, I mean, the, the instrument of the actor is the body. Right, is the human body. Um, but when it came to the the actual scores that I that that influenced me, and still to the to this day influenced me, it's interesting because around this time, this was in the mid '80s, so it was a very uh, weird time for I would say there were there were it was sort of like the birth of the Hans Zimmer sound, you could say. This yeah. was when the Dark sure. Knight was out, sure. right? And that score really kind of I felt I feel changed the game in terms of what was possible he really offered a a plausible unity between synths and the orchestra and i think since then in, in the interim from the from that score which i it wasn't just him though i think what was really brilliant about that score it's it's him and an old school uh hollywood composer um james newton howard right that's his name right james did am i getting that right james I think Jason, so. james, 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 james newton,
1: newton howard yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who
2: did the King Kong soundtrack. Um, He's a much more, so what's incredible about that soundtrack is that it has a lot of that Hollywood bombast, that neo-romantic flavor, you know, just allied with the orchestra. And then you've got Hans Zimmer coming in, offering the sort of modern textures. Nowadays, Hans Zimmer just does it all. Yeah. And very, you know, now we recognize that sound very, very readily, but back then this was really, really something compelling. So there was that, you know, just basic uh you know i did i didn't get into elfman too much uh when it got a little too kind of i don't know how to pl- a little too bright sounding it wasn't what i would go for there was a composer that nolan actually himself the director worked with before he started working with hans zimmer his name was Jul- david julyan okay he did if you listen to his scores they're actually ambient albums They're okay. they're actually just like spacious string sections like the score for memento that movie which is uh nolan's second movie is it's an ambient score um so he was somebody that i was listening to a lot he did the score for the prestige which was with hugh jackman and christian bale um that was a nolan film in between a couple of the batmans that was very very experimental in my opinion It, it it kind of almost sounds like if he had hired steve roach to, to To do the score. Lots of ambient pans, but with some dissonances thrown in there. Um, very spontaneous kind of sound. Um, so that was sort of, here's the thing, like the reason why I got really into, or the reason why I felt compelled to go down this avenue is when you pursue film scoring, what's thrilling about it is that you're using the image to kind of, to inform your process, right? And there really is, in my opinion, something very, very compelling about offering music that is actually intended to be forgotten. Because if you really focus too much on the film score when you're watching a movie, chances are the movie isn't as good as it should be. Yeah. The, the purpose of the film score is to, is to move the plot forward. So you're actually supposed to forget about it. Yeah. That's really great. The thing is, is that in order to really plug yourself into that, it's just like with acting. You have to, you know, just make yourself available all the time to, um, you know, lots of meetings. You have to probably move to LA or something like that. I know I've heard through the grapevine that Johnny Greenwood, whose scores are absolutely fantastic, has yeah, also kind of experienced a little bit of this friction uh, because he's a absolutely legit composer in his own right clashing sort of with the hollywood machine if you will so to me the stuff when you're making ambient music it's kind of all there if you can invest in the equipment and if you have the time to dedicate yourself you can engage with this music on your own terms i love the fact that steve roach comes out with an album every three months or something like that you know it's it, to me this seems yeah. like the workflow that that i feel like i get really tangled up in other people's motives ambient music enables me to just sort of enter the laboratory alone and and just sort of engage with the experimentation of it and see what kind of comes out of it without yeah. kind of getting tangled up in other narratives and other motives it allows you,
1: I found that it allows you to be able to kind of create a real musical space for yourself, yes. you know, and, and, uh, and, and what you said too is that I, with the workflow, you see a lot of very prolific ambient artists and when you start making it you find out why I usually I really admire the people that just, you know crank them out you know because it's just it's really cool because it's like they can take a concept and just run with it and then there's the album done and like you said not a lot of other things that have to get in the way of this is the concept i'm gonna do and here's an album and it's okay that i just put one out like last month
2: you know absolutely and in fact that's also part of the idea that i find so compelling about offering a new way of engaging with music which is somewhat like the disposability of these albums you're not really supposed to memorize anything there are no lyrics and there's no real melodies to kind of latch onto each one is a sort of an experience you experience it and then you move on and then you know what there's another uh album on on the way like around the corner right so there isn't this sort of attachment to episodes that are defined by albums which I think is something that I was very familiar with in the rock world and that you started to feel too much like a straitjacket for me. I want to sort of find ways to offer music under less precious circumstances where I can just sort of throw something out a statement and then it can be discarded. It can be witnessed, it can be experienced, and then it can be discarded readily and the new one or the, the next one can be can be awaited whereas there's so much you know infrastructure involved in getting a band together and you know the record label gets involved then you have to tour and it just turns into this giant story that's located around one product that has to last like a year or two years that's a lot of time you know that's a lot of time
1: <laughs> you could churn out like you know several ambient albums, electronic Absolute, albums several exactly. electronic albums in that time Exactly.
2: Like you can do seven worlds in that span and of time that seven, you, know? you can yeah. create seven universes in that yeah.
1: whole time exactly that's a good way to thought about it you could actually just start putting universes out and just exactly. and just that's make them
3: yeah.
1: and and no concept is no concept is out of place there's exactly. none that's like oh that's that's too heady. It's like I'm doing an electronic ambient interpretation of this. It's not too heady. I can go anywhere I want to. Absolutely. And, and 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 lean on that. You know, um, the I wanted to ask you this question. I got I got the countdown at eight minutes. My goodness. But I wanted to ask you this question based on what you said about the the film. That's not eight minutes. Sorry
2: to cut you out. That's not eight minutes for the interview. That's just eight minutes to before we have to reboot. Or? We have to reboot.
1: Yeah, we have to reboot the interview. Yeah. We'll, we're going we're working on getting it back to where it's like. It doesn't stop. Um, you know, it, 40 minutes is a decent ambient song length. You know, 40 minutes is. <laughs>
2: that's, a, a, that's one <laughs> deep Roach track.
1: That's one of his tracks. Yeah, one immersion track. Yeah. Um, you know, the. Um, um, well, I'll tell you what we'll, we'll do. It's like it's like seven minutes in. Um, and um, uh, so do I have time for a question or not. But um, I'll just tell you kind of where, what I wanted to ask next. And then we can just reboot it. And that's fine. Um, well, what it brought me to is, um, and I'm recording this. that's fine. but what what I brought it to when you said about you know, a movie, if the score demands you too much in, in a movie, right? It can take you out of the movie and and uh, and and for you know, saying pop, pop, rock, rock, and the other movies, they gotta engage you. I mean, yeah, you can have it in the background while you know you're doing something else. that's fine, but it's trying to get your attention. It, it is. I mean, it's like it in in four minutes um and when describing the music when i was reading the the music with the release and and describing the 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 passive sounds they associated with someone like steve roach and going back to brian enos you know can give as much attention as you want or at least attention and then new age um uh which i've embraced the term um As, as very as very active because it's getting your attention it's some of them are trying to apply like a sound healing to you so you better tune in um to that you know the sound bats and things like that um and and listening to that and approaching music that way um i mean that must have been something that was that something that you were that you were glad to be able to do after you know playing in a successful band but y'all were making music to not be passive. It was being active in a very unique way that, that, that rock and styles related to it do, you know, I mean, that's, that's just really quite a a different fork in the road, in my opinion,
2: Mm -hmm. being like that. Oh, absolutely. It was totally a different fork in the road. I'm, I have, you know, I liked, I always love to reference Walt Whitman's quote, uh, and believe it's in from leaves of grass. Um, you I, i'm paraphrasing here but it's you oh you say that i contradict myself well then so let me contradict myself i am mult. i am made of multitudes mm. and it's such a way to express how com- complicated the human experience is i always like to reference that because i have to because my life has been so full of these forks and for me the irony of the success that i encountered in um in Interpol is is the is that that was really never that was a fork that I took for very real reasons for necessary reasons but they were particular reasons very different types of reasons than for example why I'm engaging with this music now the the, I'm engaging with ambient right now it's been in my soul for a long time as I said before Um, that's sort of the music that has that and classical are are the musics that have motivated me to create. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was those energy fields that I was bringing to the table um, uh, in Interpol. And I would venture to say that a lot of what made uh, my contribution or the, the albums wherein I was contributing uh, as compelling as they were, were, you know, some of these, these spacious textures Mm -hmm. and musical ideas that I got from classical music. Mm -hmm. Um, But, the sort of avenue to actually pursue being in a band that was something that was part of, you know, kind of, a, you could say a youthful explosion on my part, I was, okay. I was, I was very, very angry and very, um, you know, very, uh, I was a club kid, you know, I was somebody that loved to present himself bodily, and in very different forms. Sure. So I was goth I was going out. That was sort of kind of the avenue the momentum was all there and i was very young and then you know i got very very lucky to meet these extremely talented individuals and form this band and it all made a lot of sense back then so it took a while for me to kind of figure out what the conventions of that were because obviously i just took it for granted like this is the kind of music that you create you're supposed to just grab people's attention and that's and do it in 4 minutes um it takes actually a lot to kind of, you know, sort of hang that up and say, thank you for, for that. Now I'm going to pursue this. One of the biggest obstacles that I encountered in composing um, it's an obstacle that I still encounter is checking this um, need to get attention. Yeah. What makes this music really, really compelling and also very challenging to actually compose is um the natural human tendency to try to get attention. Yeah. You know, there are yeah. passages in yeah. in there's times where I've just hit the erase hit erase on my daw to just say, <clears throat> oh, there is just too much happening in that passage. Like I gotta just there's just too much. Peel the layers it, back. Yeah. Peel peel them really back. But less, less is more is really and it, it's it's sometimes it can just be really unnerving because then you feel well wait, how am i supposed to not be boring? That's the challenge. That's what makes this music so compelling to me is that it's not boring, but at the same time it's also not doing things. <laughs> how do you strike that balance? <laughs> that's the
1: challenge. That is that's the challenge. Trying to grab people's attention in that amount of time and and so the um and so I was like, it's, that's very, I find that very interesting to to be able to do that. And, and, and what you said about um, bringing some of those elements into Interpol, we were doing like an alternative, alternative rock show in that time. And there was, there was, uh, you know, a lot of bands in that era that were doing some really unique things. Uh, there was definitely like kind of a little aesthetic that was happening uh, amongst, amongst the music at that time. Um, and, and now we're, you know, in the future, looking back on it with, the, with maybe different ears, Um uh and and you know i always like kind of like the the kind of for lack of a better term kind of like some of the the shoegazy elements that y'all had you know there were these elements of these kind of you know really like you know stern guitars but there was like some you know dreams wash. around it the yeah. wash around it that the swooshing kind of sound to it Absolutely. um were those some of the things that that um, when you were writing together, I don't know how y'all wrote, but was that some of the things that you'd like to, to see in there? Like, like there's a space around it. It's not just everything's super tight. It's like, there's a space for it to, yeah. to live in.
2: Yeah. What's great about the gay stuff, which I mean, um, my bloody Valentine and, um, slow dive
1: okay slow dives the band you liked okay so it's it's slow slow dive dive.
2: and my bloody valentine and my bloody
1: valentine yeah they were
2: front and center in my conscious list and i think also to a large extent my my bandmates as well um and i think what was in common with those styles and to a certain extent post-punk in general as well though in a much scratchier kind of uh much more atonal or dissonant way is that the guitars kind of they're not there. They're there for texture. They're not there for the melodies and they're not there for the chord progression. It's the bass guitar. That's doing the chord progression, the kind of walking around
1: and the walks. Yeah.
2: And then everything is just cloud around it. So I think with Interpol, there was a little bit less of that than with, a let's say, a, shoe, a proper shoegaze band, but there were certainly elements of that. There was actually one band that was always mentioned and that I always found a rather felicitous uh, comparison, which was uh, the Chameleons UK. And okay. Very, very rare kind of sound where you have a lot of that kind of punk energy, but with so much melodic layering in it. So there's like this really careful balance between the drive of punk but with a lot of really rich harmonic melodic content in it as well and just very well crafted songs and so that that was that was that would be a way that i would describe what was happening in interval while i was in the band um and i'm very proud of that because i i think that aesthetic is really compelling in its own right Um, The work that I'm doing today, I think, represents more of, um, not an unhinged version of that, but there are obviously the vessels for this kind of aesthetic are these four minute long songs, right? And they have their own conventions. They have beginnings, middles and ends. They have intentions. They have preconceived notions about the way the audience is supposed to engage with them. A pop song is kind of a, it's a world in its own, it's a certain kind of world. It has to live in a certain ecosystem. It has to behave in a certain way. So whatever of the influences that I'm sort of cultivating now, while they were certainly present back then, they were always kind of tempered by these formulas. And I don't mean to say formulaic in a bad sense. I'm saying, no, there's structure there and there's like an intent and that's compelling. That's what was happening. What's going on now for me is somewhat actually rather similar. It's just everything i was doing before but with 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 the kind of gloves taken off if you will <laughs> i get to ramble on for 10 minutes now only with keyboards <laughs> no guitars to answer to no pop song structures to 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 obey. adhere to oh is it that
1: liberating that you don't have to use chord progressions and like find free- out the right order
2: I feel free.
1: You take an Interpol song and it, uh, that had a lot of space in it. Take out the drums, bass, and guitar, and have that's the- kind of maybe
0: that's kind <laughs> of what's happening.
1: <laughs> you know, it's um yeah. Turn on the bright lights. is like the first one I went to. That's the first time we to I just sure. went back to the beginning and stuff like that because I wanted to listen to the bands. But yeah, they strip it away, and then here's what was around it. Um, like okay, so um, but I want to get into some of the tracks on the album, but I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about a bassist going into to this music. Did you try uh, and have tried like, uh, well, how, how can I put bass in? Like, mm-hmm. is that something that, that, that you've looked at?
2: Absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the things that happened for me when with, with uh, Aqueduct, part of the liberatory nature of this effort was also kind of permitting myself to look at the bass guitar as an instrument that was part of my story. Cool. Because for the longest time, I have been trying to to kind of erase it. Uh, and that's more of a kind of like a psychological therapeutic idea that I've discovered in therapy and and also something that I'm going to be speaking a lot about um when I write my essay collection and so forth. But the long and short of it is that I'm a guitarist, I guess you could say by not by trade, but by, by vocation. I don't know exactly. I mean, I took, I started out as a guitarist when I was a teenager, and I was very much into heavy metal. Okay, cool. And then I put it, put it, down, you know, the grunge revolution kind of made that embarrassing. And then I just kind of was like, hey, <laughs> I want to go to school. <laughs> I want to be a serious guy. I'm not going to be a metalhead for the rest of my life. Blah blah blah, blah,
1: blah, blah. <laughs> We were having a discussion about that recently. It uh, it it <laughs> it did make it a little bit. It did it did take some of those bands, and they got shoved aside. Yeah, oh Guns yeah. N' Roses and such. Um, wow, yeah. yeah. I mean, so then I, it kind of I put my guitar, it I kind of hopped my guitar. Yeah.
2: Fashion-wise, so... it actually also kind oh, of made it embarrassing. <laughs> it was like all it took was one summer for, for that not to, to for sp- spandex was out like in one summer, you know. <laughs> But um, you know, the grunge era had its own excesses, as far as sure. I'm concerned. So, sure. uh, but we won't go down that avenue because sure. we'll, we won't come back if we go down that We avenue.
1: won't come back. Yeah, <laughs> we come down that universe, and it does it lead? Where does it lead? Yeah, I understand. Oh <laughs> um,
2: but yeah, so I put down. I just stopped playing music really, and I pursued um, my. Uh, you know, I wanted to get a philosophy degree, and I wanted to be a philosophy professor. But then, you know, I moved to New York, and then of course everything got you know shifted in in that climate i still had these urges and i still wanted to be seen and so forth and i discovered the clubs and all of that and um it just so happened that when i met uh my former bandmates uh way back when in the late 90s they needed a bass guitarist and because i was very sort of available and wanted to just experiment and try everything i said yeah sure why not yeah I wasn't a bass guitarist, I was a okay. guitarist.
1: Did you play keys? Did you play synths and stuff around then? And I did play the synths, keyboards but live, okay.
2: live I didn't do that because I wanted to play the bass guitar because the bass became such an important contribution to the you know, any the, the keyboards were always very much in the background. Yeah. Okay. Um so really we could just hire people to to perform those parts live. I did okay. them on the albums. But in to be quite honest with you, the keys the keyboard is sort of where my spiritual home is. That's okay. sort of where I I go to the piano before I go to anything else. To me, the bass guitar is just, um, it's just one of the instruments that I know how to play. I consider yeah. myself much more of a multi-instrumentalist than a bass guitarist per se. It okay. just so happens that um, due to the popularity of, of Interpol, um, you know, for at least the time being that, that's sort of what most you know readily comes to mind when you think of me is that you know that, yeah, I, that, bass. I, that i'm a bass guitarist but yeah. for me to 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 start working on this album i actually had to kind of check my impulse to say well there won't be any bass guitar because i don't want to like i've already done enough work with that so i'm not gonna but then i you know one thing that really inspired me was patrick o'hearn i don't know if you're how familiar you are with his i,
1: I, I am yeah i have
2: He, I feel, is somebody that is just completely underrated, in my opinion. I mean, his if you take a journey through his albums, I mean, talk about universes. And, you know, the sound that he cultivated, it's certainly of a certain era. And one might say that, you know, there might be like whenever I've played Patrick O'Hearn for people, they immediately think of the 80s and the 90s. It's like yeah, okay. they're being transported back to that time. So there is something sort of zeitgeisty. You just put that aside. His music is, and nobody makes music like he does. No one Never. does what he does. He is able to turn pop songs into ambient songs and vice versa and back and forth. I mean, he's an absolute genius. He's a bass guitarist. Yep. He, and he is someone who offers the bass guitar up as an ambient instrument. He very much does. And he got me into fretless. So I picked up a fretless bass, okay. and for me, Patrick O'Hearn was in my, was in my soul. While I, if you will, while I was making Aqueduct, whenever I would kind of get tripped up and say, "Ah, oh, why am I playing bass guitar? I don't want to like be. I just want to focus on the keys. I want to focus on the synths." I thought of Patrick O'Hearn, who was able to just make it a non-starter of an issue. When you hear his music, you hear the bass guitar, yeah. you hear the synths, but it is all of such a unity that you're not really thinking about either. You're just thinking about music. You're just Mm. thinking about what's beautiful about it. So, yes, I I certainly feel that, you know, as a, as, you know, I, I, I don't deign to call myself a a pianist or I not deign is not the right word, but I don't, uh, don't uh, what's the word? I'm like, uh, try to elevate myself to the, to the level of calling myself a pianist. Yeah, sure. Yeah. There's always that.
1: Well, no, there's always that thing where it's like, you know, I can't, I can't play Bach.
2: I can't. And I'm I'm a keyboardist. I'm not a keyboardist. Yeah, keyboardist. keyboardist. That's a different distinction. There is a distinction there. I'm a keyboardist and a guitarist and a bass guitarist. And you try to use those three approaches to inform uh, what I'm doing today equally. Like to me, they're just instruments that are in front of me that I like to just combine at will. Whenever, whenever the, whenever the piece needs, when the piece it's like a, it's like you're making a soup, like what does this recipe call for? Oh, it calls for this. Oh, I can actually make that. Let me, let me make that.
1: When you've got the using the, and you went with the fretless bass, which has a a smoother sound, a more connecting of notes. When you mentioned Patrick O'Hearn, who I very much like and Wyndham Hill, I'm a fan of, you I also had, think uh, you just had
2: uh, Will Ackerman on your Will show.
1: Ackerman on the show and um, you know, admired his music for a long time and and how he every song's in a different tuning. And you mentioned that Patrick O'Hearn so great the smooth connections of at the melodic functions of the fretless bass, and I also think of Michael Mannering, who also mm-hmm. was on Wyndham Hill records mm-hmm. too, who would do this melodic bass. You know, I actually interviewed someone that Michael Mannering was on his album, but I, I think of him. You maybe think of him too, like label mates for a while on Wyndham Hill, Patrick O'Hearn and Michael mm-hmm. Mannering. You know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and that. Now, now saying 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 that uh, you're a keyboardist. Um, on Aqueduct, uh, what uh, what were some of the uh, the synth the synths that you utilize? Were you utilizing a lot of you know uh, software type things? Uh, was that what you were right then, and, and a mixture of both? What were you using to create the the synth uh, sounds, keyboard sounds?
2: Well, uh, I I'm ashamed to say that I'm part of the generation of of uh, musicians and composers who are applying themselves to this genre without having ever once bought an actual hardware synth. Oh, there's no shame in that now. <laughs> this is where we are. I know. Well, no, but I still see the, the, <laughs> the Instagram posts of Steve Roach with his array of cables and, and massive kind oh. of amp- amplifiers and modules. Yeah. And it's so shaming because I'm like here in front of my Mac,
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're in the spaceship they're on the spaceship I, and here an i am Oberheim and exactly there's an Oberheim. And...
2: <laughs> yeah and here i am in my virtual reality like <laughs> pre- reality. pretending like playing at the role of the synthesis where they <laughs> they are up there actually interacting with the machines but you know there's some truth in that and in fact actually what i've been doing lately is i picked uh a synth that I just have been graduate gra- gravitating towards, which is the ARP 2600. Sure. And I've just been teaching myself how to manipulate sounds on the uh, clone, on the software clone of it with, with YouTube and stuff like that. And who knows, maybe one day I'll actually get either a hardware clone of it or, or an old version of it. Um, sure. But uh, there's something very compelling to me about that instrument but for for Aqueduct, I was really relying a lot on, uh, um, this this is great uh, plugin called String Machine, which just has an incredible array of just string synths, like old school uh, analog string synths. Um, there was the DX7, which is of course you know an iconic uh, digital sure. synth, yeah, yeah, and just you know you're you're just your natural kind of go to high end software synths from native instruments and so forth, and yeah. that with Logic, I mean. We're just at a place today where to talk about, you know, anyone, I mean, literally anyone can create an ambient album in the box without, if you just know enough about how to manipulate the sounds in the computer, it's almost makes, and because those companies all make some form of emulation of the old synths, it's easy to get lost in their kind of presets and stuff, which is why I feel like it's important to really start. This is something that I'm engaging with right now is to really start learning about actual synthesis because actual synthesis enables you to kind of create songs from, uh, sounds from, from from scratch. Um, of course I will always be relying on a lot of the samples and the presets that are available in the, uh, the software, uh, emulations. I mean, it's going to be impossible for me to get out of that. I find that by kind of diving in to those modules that are just kind of like, you know, embedded inside my computer that I'm, you know, I'm not engaging with them in some kind of physical way. I throw on a bunch of reverbs onto it. I've got a wash going, perhaps some percussion. Uh, If I just add like an actual shaker, an actual bongo, an actual guitar, by the time I'm done with that, it all kind of comes together like Mm -hmm. a very unique sounding thing. I find that adding just at least one mic'd acoustic instrument goes a really long way towards um, sort of getting a a sound that might sound formulaic and kind of preset heavy, if you will. Like, oh, people will be like, oh, that's that preset on that instrument or something. (laughs) You add a mic'd instrument and you play it yourself. Now you have something truly Mm -hmm. um, sui generis, if you will wow
1: that's you know that's something that's something very wise to put out there because it does it it changes it it changes it whenever you put a quote unquote you know acoustic instrument on there it really does it it moves it 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 uh, it gels it just right you know well it's like looking at looking at track 1 uh caverna the track the first track you bring in you bring in a flute An actual flute, I guess a guest artist come in and put flute. Yes, a great Keith Bonner.
2: Keith Bonner, okay. He plays in a local orchestra over here uh, called the Riverside Symphony. Um, I met him through a friend and we gelled really well. I actually have two more recordings of him, which I will be putting on my album that will be coming out later this year. Nice. That one, the Caverna, I wrote the song around his performance. I basically just put down like a whole note D drone that just kept going. And it was, I just said, let's, and it was actually to get a mic check. So I said, just, just lay down some improv over this drone, you know, let's stay in this key and blah, 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 blah. And then I went back to those recordings. I said, these are fantastic improvisations. And he actually was very nervous about improvisation because he's classically trained and classically trained, musicians are notoriously terrified of improvising. And I threw a bunch of improvisation at him and he was like, what? But he's very interested in continuing to work. And we are going to continue to work together uh, for that very purpose. Um, Like I'm thinking, I don't know if you're familiar with Dean Evanson, or I think you may have interviewed him, right? I
1: I did him and Dudley. Yes. Him and his wife, Dudley. And Dudley. Mm -hmm. That's right.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's an example of someone who does put out much music per year, you could say. And all of his stuff is, is highly improvisatory and it's really inspiring for me. I I kind of want to take a page from that when I work with Keith again, which is mm. to sort of create an open space and let the flute and the guitar interact with each other without any kind of uh, songwriting around it, like just sort of create textures and create moods. Well, that's sort of what Caverna was. And then what I just did was sort of organize my synths around his performance. Um so yeah, I was really happy to start off the album with an actual uh, flute, um, which is just like an important contribution to my to the sound that I want to explore right now. There's nothing more calming in my opinion than a than a well-played flute.
1: Was your arc from starting out with the first song and your guests, did you have a shape that you were putting on? And then, like, where did you go after that first one going into being? Um, one of the things about this music is that if there's ever an album nowadays that needs to be taken as a whole piece of work from start to finish, um, it, it's electronic music. But, um, what was like can talk about about being and like where you were going from there? Um, because after that, you released the first track as its own, and so what was kind of the shape of the album coming out of, out of the, out of the cavern <laughs> <laughs> yes. or in the cavern or staying in the cavern? I don't know. You, you can talk so it about definitely it. Getting, <laughs> definitely
2: getting out of the cavern for sure. Yeah, Cause you ha-
1: I hear the nature sounds come in later. So, you know, yeah.
2: The idea of the album is certainly something that is steadily losing kind of centrality in the way that we engage with music these days. Yeah. i, I I'm, 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 mourning it you could say because i certainly am a lover of the aesthetic of an album or the idea of an album like this thing that you can use to sort of tell a story across um a certain sequence of of music but i you know people are engaging with music in very very different ways uh through technology today and so you know life is about moving on you know so i'm i i don't want to gainsay any kind of attempt to to change the way that we relate to music, it's not for my generation to to uh, to impose that upon the later generations. That being said, I'm a very firm believer in the album. I love thinking about what story I want to tell. I love albums that have sequences of tracks that are very mindful of you know which one com- why one should happen from the next. This is definitely a holdover from the physical uh, interaction with media. When you could sort of take a uh, an album, and and also certainly the idea of flipping the side, right? That's an act in the story, right? Where the yeah. the listener then suddenly takes a moment. I've always found that the first track on a side B has a certain relationship that is very similar across very different kinds of musics, but it's a, it's a I think it's a feature of this kind of way of telling a story, in the same way that, you know narratives in movies and in novels have their own kind of like formulas that they need to obey such as the hero's journey I feel that when you listen to an album it also has its own kind of internal logic and one of those logics is this idea of you flip the side and that first track on side b has some kind of it, it's just doing something that's that's different than than the other tracks if, mm. if it's done well um, and I would say that anywhere between like an Enya album and a Van Halen album has the same kind of like arc in that respect. It's just the content is very, very different. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's an example of how, of what I love about the album. And it's certainly not a, um, you know, this is, we're talking about a, a virtually dead art form here, but whatever. This was something that felt, I felt compelled to engage with, with Aqueduct. And there's absolutely a story that's being told there. And I feel like, what I was trying to go for with New Cambria, there's this, to me, it was the the, the three tracks in the middle, tracks three, four, and five, New Cambria, Aprey 2, and then Always Light. Those are like, prey 2 is sort of the valley between the two mountain peaks. New Cambria is the first peak. light is the second peak. Between the two peaks is this coal that is a prey to. The first two tracks and the latter two tracks are sort of the slopes in and the slopes out. So the whole journey is kind of like a day hike. I'm a hiker, I'm a backpacker, I'm a naturalist. And so that activity, that passion of mine, informs my art very much. There is a kind of pace that you go through when you go on a day hike and you climb up a mountain and then you climb back down. There's like a whole kind of process to it. And you feel whenever you get back to the car after you've done a day hike that you've experienced something. You kind of don't know what, but Mm -hmm. something you've engaged with, with truth on some kind of level and it's had its own arc and it took all day to do it hmm. so for me that informed the process of of the album that would be the way that i would probably describe the structure of aqueduct
1: okay and that and that that was and that also talks about how it 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 that's in that journey is that how it also engages with with the theme a the broad theme
2: of nature or or the wilderness the space there's no in this i feel like i mean i'm i don't think that he would uh deny this necessarily maybe you can ask him when you when you do your interview with him again but um i feel like you can't really take the desert out of steve roach's music
1: no the expanse I, but I, it's I also that, it's that dry way.
2: hot kind of the dry hotness of that expanse i think is particular to to, to Steve Roach. And that's where he lives. He lives in the Southwest. So, you know, that it makes a lot of sense whenever that's the, yeah. seems to be the running theme that I hear whenever I put on a Steve Roach album for me, I think it would definitely, if there will be one, I mean, well, uh, this is only my first album, so I don't want to say too much about where I'm headed because I'm still figuring it out. But yeah. so far it feels like the boreal forest. I mean, I'm a Northeasterner. So like, okay. I, the woods cool. that I know are wet, green, Ten. dense, Full, craggy, um, full of roots, rock, granite. There that's sort of those are the materials that I engage with when it comes to this kind of music.
1: That's interesting. You said from the
2: Northwest. And then we, we had a
1: little grunge talk earlier. So that was a there you go, with the fashion. Um, I was like you can't, the, you can't
2: take the mist out of out of Nirvana. Like yeah. without without that like Seattle depression mist, okay. there you don't have grunge. You just don't
1: you don't have it that that <laughs> dampness up there hopefully it would travel up there at the around the middle of this year we come around go up that way but and and the aqueduct like flows water it like directs water you know and 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 there's no song on this titled that which is also a great thing about electronic music you don't have to have that song um but um it controls water it controls the flow of it you know how did you come across that title I mean, I, I when I see a title like that and I'm looking into it, I'll just go define, you know, and 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 then kind of go from there.
2: Yeah. Um, came up with the title pretty late. Like it was after basically all the tracks were assembled and and written, if not totally recorded. Yeah. Um, Do you see those in the northwest a lot? Open? See an aqueduct? In the north, you mean in the northeast? In the
1: northeast, yeah. Thank you.
2: Not, not really, not so much. I mean, yeah. you have to go looking for it. Like, I know that there was one that I encountered in uh, upstate New York in the Adirondacks, which is one of my favorite uh, places to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much like a rural phenomenon, but they're also, you know, they're so integrated into um, into civilization that you barely notice when they're when they're there when they're around. Yeah, I mean, really, if you want to think about actual like you know, iconic looking structures that are aqueducts. You have to go back to the Roman times when they were using Mm. their aqueducts, which are the most famous version. But, you know, also there's, you know, I mean, you can't have LA without aqueducts, right? (laughs) There's no such thing as LA without like irrigation. (laughs) So that idea of sort of like systematization of drawing upon the, the water, water that exists naturally somewhere else, like this idea of tapping into something to nourish, And sort of liquefy. For me, water is perhaps, I like to engage with elements when when I create uh, art, and this would be for not just music, but even acting and writing. I try to think about what element am I in. Hmm. Water, to me, feels like the most uh, compelling one, or at least the one that can stimulate the most activity. There's just, there's a lot to, you know, when we think about the unconscious, we're always thinking about submersion, right? We're thinking about going underneath the lip of consciousness kind of like, you know, sort of sinking underneath. Uh, and then, you know, it's sort of like encountering the whale also I'm reading Moby Dick right now. So there's a lot of, Oh, water. wow.
1: First time. I've First never time it. Yeah.
2: It, it's oh talk about a journey. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm I, and I am loving this one actually, but oh, it just, man. this idea of the whale kind of, to me, the wilderness is kind of like a gigantic whale that I'm entering. I'm going inside this, giant leviathan inside its belly belly and well oh, you're on the hero's journey on that exactly
1: campbell and like that. jonah yeah yeah it's like the belly of the beast the Will, the Will. completely yeah.
2: and and so i just feel like water as as an i as an element is just you can't lose with that um and then from there i go to other elements that i wish to explore so to the idea that what I wanted, the story that I wanted to tell, was this relationship between civilization and the natural, the natural kind of irrigation of civilization from some preternatural location of water. Uh, to me, just felt like that was the story that I was telling uh, with this record. So, like for example, "Embers," which is sort of the the penultimate track, and it's the first track that is the slope downward from "Always Light." That's a track that was directly inspired by a lot of my encounter with wildfires as I go backpacking in the West, which is now sadly quite an inescapable feature of uh, interacting with wild spaces out in the West. Mm -hmm. If you want to like not encounter wildfires every year, you have to go very, very early in the season because they just basically start and they don't go anywhere. They stay the entire time. So if you're hiking out in the West. Wow you're you're seeing you're seeing the haze and it's sad so embers to me is like an exploration of like the absence of water like what what happens when things are too dry um and in, and there is somewhat of a mournful aspect to that particular track so i kind of like think yeah. about it as my sort of elegy for the uh, western woods
1: mm. that that's uh, wow it's just part of the season there now that's it really is that's it's, really uh, that's really something to think about. Yeah. And then, you know, and then there's that, the notion that the earth, what will be taken from the earth as it gets warmer is the water won't exist. You know, it's like, it'll be gone. It'll be boiled away, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, um, the uh, yeah, I was thinking about the uh, the day the earth stood still whenever Clatu says the earth, this will be planet will be reduced to a, like a burnt out ember or something like that when they, when he's standing there giving his Mm -hmm. monologue to the crowd you know if you don't shape up it'll be burnt to an ember um
2: and and it's happening
1: and it's happening it's happening i i was um working on a a class here and and when you had mentioned you know the the nature of water i i'd pulled the text from it and the text is actually it's a it's a it's a um it's actually a um an analysis of uh of of star wars um really but whenever it goes into the section on religion and the myth star wars being connected to to taoism a lot and the tao Te ching uh and there's a quote that they pull from it um talking about um the nature of the force flowing and that connecting it to taoism and buddhism instead of western philosophy and there's a quote uh on the tao from water In this world, there is nothing more submissive and weak than water, yet for attacking that which is hard and strong, nothing can surpass it. This is because there is nothing that can take its place. Wow. You know? Wow. We can control it to an extent, but nothing can take its place.
2: So. Unbelievable. And without water, there is no life. That water is what's being looked for when the exoplanets are being discovered and being taken note of right now that's the main thing right water you're right you know you think about it that way it's water it's not even light it's not even light or oxygen or anything we're mm-hmm. looking for water
1: yeah it's not water and it's like if we can find the water we know we have something there
2: yeah yeah it's not that's gravity fine. thank you for sharing that that quote that's uh, that was really really powerful
1: it's uh um it, it's uh, it's uh, I, but I, I like how you move from so the transition coming out of the the track that you would say this functions as, as a eulogy, going into um, eternal cloud, because we got to have clouds in the sky on that water planet that we find, and/ or that planet that has water and land. Um, we have to find, find clouds. Um, and uh, that's where you close in. That's where you you wrap the album up. Just this, you wrap this universe up, right before you, you go for the next one. Well, it's um, the opposite of know. Caverna,
2: right? Caverna is down in the depths. It's inside a cave. It's inside this sort of place where you encounter the shadow of the soul. The eternal cloud is sort of the transfiguration into heaven.
0: Mm, okay, okay, down below
1: to the top. From, uh, yeah. from the top, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that passing passing through that. Um, I've got a countdown if you don't mind pushing it one more time so we no, could wrap. I don't want to take too much of your time no, no, on no. that.
2: I'm, I made Into lots that. of time for this this interview because um, of you know the esteem We've, that I have for your program. Thank <laughs> thanks, I, thanks I, so I, much for listening to, in. Oh, yeah, I, I really tell appreciate you, the that. company that I'm in in this is just it's a true honor to be on this show because I was looking through the people that you've had on and I just was saying what Eric Wallow? What David Helpling? What Sam Rosenfeld, What? Steve Roach? What? Robert Rich? These are all the people that I listen to.
1: So it's such a treat. Really great to have you on here. Yeah, please come back. And I thought we would float off on an eternal cloud, if that sounds okay. Oh, let us
2: float. Let (laughs) us float.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Carlos. Good to meet you. You're welcome. Thank you.
2: Great to meet you, you, Jason. Thank you for having me on. It was a real honor. Very welcome. Yeah, look forward to the next time.
0: And thanks again to Carlos Dingler for being on Tones and Drones. Closing the show with the song Eternal Cloud. The album is called Aqueduct. You can find out more information at his website, carlosdingler.com. Tones and Drones is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU. More about the station at kvolu.org. And you can find the program on the major podcast platforms, also on the NPR One app. As always, thank you for listening to Tones and Drones, and may music bring you peace and joy.